Hello and welcome to the Florida Peanut Podcast. I'm Noah Walker with All Things Visual Marketing and joining us today in studio, we have our fearless leader, Laura Fowler-Goss and our incredible assistant today, Anne-Marie, uh, Laura's more than capable daughter and, and she's here with the hard-hitting questions today. And those hard-hitting questions will be for our guest, Dr. Shija George, who is a research coordinator and biochemist for University of Florida IFAS, uh, where she works at the North Florida Research and Education Center in Quincy, I believe, right, Dr. George? That is correct. Well, welcome and thanks for joining us today. Um, we're we're We've had a great conversation up to this point, but we're looking to uh, to to put as much information as we can from you out there because you speak at a very high level about some real high level issues and, and projects that you're working on. So why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Thanks, Noah. And hi, Laura and Anne-Marie. And it's a pleasure uh, to be out here with you and uh, especially representing UF IFAS. Uh, and the North Florida Research and Education Center. You're right, I'm located in Quincy, but North Florida Research and Education Center has two other centers in Live Oak and Mariana as well. Uh, I, I am a research coordinator uh, and my main job right now is to forge large teams to develop research questions and to develop grants and programs and go after funding. So that's my main uh, job here at the NFREC. However, I came to the NFREC as a postdoc. My training is as a biochemist, as a plant biochemist. And um, I, I, I played in horticulture for a couple of years before moving to agronomy. And uh, my overarching theme of my research has been, you know, cropping systems improving the viability and sustainability of cropping systems from two perspectives, improving profitability for our producers and improving environmental sustainability. And for that, I the overarching theme are, are threefold. One is year-round crop on the ground, keeping the soil covered, keeping live roots in the soil, and minimum disturbance to the soil. So my research and my team's research has been within the framework uh, of that. And again, I want to remind that I'm not, I'm just a person here, but there's a huge team out at the NFREC and at UF IFAS that makes all this cool research possible. We are just so thankful for the work that you all are doing. Uh, I won't put you on the spot because we didn't ask this in the pre-interview conversation, but there's hundreds of thousands of dollars every year that funds peanut research specific. And I would imagine not dozens, but but really a lot of people that contribute to that collaboration for those projects. Absolutely. First of all, I wanted to show, you know, express our gratitude for all the uh, research dollars uh, that come from uh, the Federation and from the various checkoff funds. And that keeps a lot of pertinent questions uh, alive and um, uh, we are able to answer those questions for you. I just wanted to say that every, if you come out to the North Florida REC, whether in Quincy or Mariana, this is how I, I explain our center to people. Every office, every room is a different expertise. So you have an agronomist looking at looking at crops and how they grow and physiology. And then you have a plant pathologist, you have an entomologist, you have a soil and water specialist, you have a breeder and you have a geneticist and every room is a different specialty. So if I get stuck with a problem, I just 
get up and go next door and boom, I have uh, an answer and I have a solution or at least we can brainstorm. That's the beauty of working out there at the REC. But yes, there's dozens of people working on peanut questions and peanut and peanut is not growing in a silo it's growing with other crops so how peanut interacts right. with other crops and so on and so forth so there's dozens of researchers uh trying to help our producers succeed that's right and i will mention that we try to tailor this podcast to the producers but we recognize that when we put it on the internet it, it's open to everybody so thank you for your layman terms and saying things that are very impactful to the actual farmers but also that can provide education to whoever is listening so so thanks for that something that was really impactful that you said was the success for the producers in terms of profitability and sustainability. And that theme is really, really overarching to everything that the Federation does. And we appreciate people in your position that recognize that. So thank you very much. Yeah, those two words are huge. So let's, uh, let's get into some of the meat and potatoes of what, what you do. What, uh, what's a recent project that, that you've completed that maybe some of our farmers would have worked with or or should know about coming yeah. up? So, like I said, my, my main job is to bring large uh, interdisciplinary teams together. I mean, people with different expertise coming together. So one of the projects that's uh, uh, about five, six years old now is a $15 million USDA project, U United States Department of Ag project on a an oilseed crop, just like peanut, another oilseed crop, but it is from the brassica family, from you know the from the cabbage family, if you will. Mm. Uh, but this is an oilseed, just like a little mustard. It's a tiny mustard, and but it's non-edible. You you, it's not for human consumption. So here's the cool thing about this crop: you grow this crop in the winter when you are not growing your peanuts or your cotton or your corn or any other crop. It grows in the winter when a lot of our producers are not growing anything and the land is bare. And here's an opportunity for producers to grow this in the winter, make revenue, make generate revenue out of it. Otherwise, they would not be making anything out of that land in the winter. And this oilseed crop, this tiny mustard can be harvested, crushed for oil, and it's not edible, but it goes into the renewable oil uh, stream for sustainable aviation fuel. And there's a big, big focus and demand for sustainable aviation fuel and renewable diesel. And once you crush the seed and get the oil out of it, whatever remains is very high in protein. It's about 40% protein. And guess wow. what? Yep, 40% protein. And guess what? Our Southeast, like Florida, Georgia, Alabama, this region is hungry for uh, protein in the winter for our mm -hmm. cattle. And so we tested it in cattle and we can use it as a protein supplement. So the entire product is used. There's nothing going to waste. And that was a very successful project. We did it for, well, the grant was funded for five years, but we started doing preliminary work even before that. And finally in 2022 fall, it's in the ground right now, uh, there was uh, commercial acres launched with our industry. Awesome. Yep. And so it takes a while for you know an idea uh, like a tiny mustard to become a, a giant, uh, a giant, giant enterprise. Yeah. And, and, it, and that 
that um, seed again is called what? Brassica carinata. I'm sorry, I should have Brass said it. It's called carinata and it's from the Brassica mm -hmm. family. So Brassica carinata. It's very similar to canola. In fact, if you if, if it's not a trained eye, you could mistake uh, one for the other. It's beautiful yellow flowers. If you come out uh, in March, you'll it's it's a nice photo op, by the way. It's lovely yellow flowers. Mm -hmm. So you'd have to be careful in harvesting that for, for a layman like me, right? I yeah. go to cook with Brassica carinata and end up setting my whole kitchen on fire because it's used <laughs> for jet fuel, <laughs> not cooking oil. <laughs> well, great. Yeah. That's that's an incredible project. I think, um, Anne-Marie, did you have a question about how a project like this comes to fruition? How does the scientific method that kids learn in school is it the same as the professional research method? Anne-Marie, you'll be glad to know, and your friends as well, that it is exactly the same thing. What you are learning in school today, asking a question, developing a hypothesis, checking to see if it's a testable question, can I really test it? And then setting up a design and doing the experiment and observations, conclusions, it's exactly the same thing. Now your school project may have to finish in a few weeks. The only difference is that ours may not finish that fast. We have to test it. For instance, if you're doing a project with peanuts, we have to wait for the whole peanut season from seed to, to plant, Till the pods develop, we have to wait for the entire season, see how it uh, works out. So the time is the only difference, but the steps are exactly the same. You'll be glad to know. So whatever you're doing in school is what you're going to apply in your professional life when you grow up. So that's exactly how we do it. It's very, very cool. So where do the do the questions come from the minds of researchers who are familiar or from the industry? And then this, this just came to me. Does every question require a hypothesis? Because that's what you think will happen, right? Or can you just just say, well, what it is, what it is? Ask a question and roll with it. That's a great question. So it's a, it's a mix. So here's the thing, Laura. There are some of our, so we do two types of research. One is applied research and one is basic research. And let me take a moment to explain this for whoever. So the applied research is, Laura, I come out to your farm, I see a problem, and Laura, you say that, you know, this has been a problem, it's it's probably a disease, it's probably, you know, it's not getting enough uh, nutrients or whatnot. So we are like, okay, so you, you brought the problem to us. You actually, you did half the job for us actually over there. In this case, it's like you, said that there was a problem and then we developed a question around it. And that's applied research. We see a problem, we, we, we okay. develop a quick experiment, but then there's a basic side of it. And those are aspects like breeding and developing new uh, varieties and cultivars. And that is, you have to go down to the DNA of it, right? It isn't something that I can see, I can, but, I have to study the DNA of it. I have to see how I can modify, how, can, how I can breed this for better yield, better disease resistance and things like that. And that, that, pipe, that basic research needs to continue. It is probably something that's not ready for prime time in several years. But unless we have that basic foundation, basic research, like how are these proteins working and how's the DNA interacting and all that, 
then we'll never have enough ammunition, if you will, or enough fuel mm -hmm. to fuel this applied research. So now you bring us a problem. We're like, oh yeah, we have some basic research done on these things. Let's take it off the shelf. Let's try out a few different things on the farmer's field or in our plots. And then we come up with an answer. So those are the two types of research that we do. And they're very different in, in their timelines and in how we approach it. I hope that answers your question, but I... Um, I think so. And speaking of timeline, between when there there is a question, you know, that dictates a research project through commercial application, what what and I'm certain that it's different, you know, based on what the project is. But but talk us through that timeline, because the farmers they want to be profitable, they mm -hmm. want to be you know very sustainable in their operations on every level. They want to be sure that the land will continue to help them produce. Um, for many, many years, and they want the the money to be there to help them continue what they're doing for many, many years. So so talk us through the timeline of, you know, how the projects go from conception to commercial application and, and some basic, you know, maybe even some examples of some peanut research that you've seen done um, or something like that, that we can really gain a, an understanding of. Absolutely right. I'll do that. So some examples of, say you have a new fungicide on the market or a new, new product, those are the easy, th those are the lower hanging fruits, if you will. You test a bunch of products uh, on a, a few varieties of peanuts that are out there and you test it for a couple years and you get, res and you test it in multiple locations. So let me just bring, so if you have multiple years and multiple locations, then you get more power in your data set. You know, if I do it only in one location, then mm, yeah, because that may be true only for a small. So what I do is if I'm doing two years of research, I do it in say four locations. So really four times how a scientist looks at it is I'm getting four times two, eight data sets. So that's a more uh -huh. powerful, that's a more powerful data set. Then I'm like, oh, this is going to be true across the entire Florida you know, not just the Panhandle, not just the Huani Valley, but maybe across. And so I have more confidence in that data. In two or three years, I say, yeah, this product is good. And boom, it's, it's ready for prime time. Now, on the other end, something like breeding, something like Dr. Barry Tillman does. Yes. You know, you had him earlier on your podcast. That takes you know, several years because it is much it? different than a second yeah. grade llama bean and a Ziploc bag. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You are exactly right. So that's going into the DNA of it. That's trying to understand. So he makes some crosses. He takes parents and he crosses and then the, and the, and the siblings and the, and the next generation and the next generation. Then here's what he has to do. That's in the lab. Then he has to prove it in the field. So he takes it out to the field in many locations and then he looks at it and then he has to test it over time and over time he keep making these crosses till he gets what he's looking for and this could be for higher yield it could be for disease resistance it could be for drought tolerance use less uh, water there's just so many of these questions uh, that a breeder has to look at again the problems are coming from the field the problems are coming from the producers and they're saying you know what uh, I want to, there's, there's disease, there's, I'm not making enough money on this variety. So we need, so constantly that pipeline. So Barry Tillman is constantly 
creating that pipeline. But what, he, if he starts today, it'll be seven, eight, 10 years down the line before he gets a successful, which he released a successful variety uh, this fall, uh, this past fall. And, and that is a result of a lot of years. So there's different types. There's, uh, if there's a, let's say, disease that's broken out, there can be quick remedies to it. Hey, we have a few products. Let's try these products. In a couple of years, you have an answer. But then there are some that are a little bit more involved, if you know what I mean. So if the if the research project starts in the laboratory and then is a, a small plot at the research center, then what are the steps after that? I, ass, I assume you have to have buy-in from the producers and and hopefully they're eager to, to work with your groups and say, sure, come out and plant five acres or talk to us about that. Exactly. So, you know, so a, a concept starts in the lab. We do it in our small plot uh, trials because that's a proof of concept. If it doesn't work in a small plot trial, then it's not probably going anywhere. So we do it for a few years, multi-locations, and we're like, ah, okay, there's some promise in this method that we're doing. It could be a product. It could be a practice, you know, it could be, you know, because products are easier to go commercial and launch because here's the thing uh this is the rate you spray but a practice changing a practice takes a longer time Mm -hmm. so that's the difference between a product and a practice uh you know even if somebody comes to you and say hey use this product it's a lot easier but somebody asks us to change our lifestyle it means it's different. I wrote down that you yeah. inc- improve crop production and cropping systems. And I'm thinking, but my granddaddy didn't do it that way. Um, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So changing our life, it's, it's almost like, yeah, you could be healthier if you changed your lifestyle. Oh, but can I just get a pill instead? You know, it's a lot easier uh-huh. to pop that mm-hmm. pill in rather than change. However, so here we started our small plot research we are satisfied with what we see. And then we, and a lot of producers, a lot of our producer friends are always willing to partner with us to do, they give up a piece of their uh, land and they have to accommodate us because we go with our stuff and we go with our little thing. And we always try to communicate with them that this is what we are planning to do. And more and more our research is going on farm so that we get proof of concept sooner with the producer. So we know what the real world issues are. Many a times we take it to a five acre, 10 acre um, strip and we see ah, it's not working exactly the way it worked in a small plot. So we need to tweak it a little bit. But guess what? The beauty of this whole thing is the producer is right there. And sometimes, not sometimes, oftentimes the producer has excellent solutions for the problems that we are facing because he or she is right there in the middle of that in the real world and saying you know what i would tweak it this way or this is what i have seen on my pro- on my land on in my field so maybe this is what you're missing and then we are like ah let's take it back wow that's awesome so you know the producer has such a big role to play because nobody knows the land like the producer so, mm-hmm. so that's really the progression of research from lab to small plot to large real world out there, then circle back and forth a little bit before it's ready for prime time. Awesome. Nice. And that's a great, I mean, with the the project that you told us about with the Brasca Coronata seems like it's 
you know, it, it answered, answered the question of what do I do with my land whenever it's mm-hmm. not in use? How can I be more efficient and higher in profitability and uh, without destroying my ability to get into my cash crops, right? That's right. So exactly. How, right. Essentially, how can I rotate with another cash crop? And it sounds like it's not just great for the farmer. It'll be great for other farmers as well as, you know, a whole, maybe possibly a whole new industry in terms of um, jet fuel and, mm-hmm. and biodiesel. So incredible. Yeah, cool. Very cool. Yeah, very cool. What are um, what are some uh, current what are some current projects? So that one has been over the last five, six years is now on commercial acreage this year. What are some current projects that you're working on? Okay, so there's a big, exactly like uh, you said a few minutes ago, you know, this fine line between profitability and environmental sustainability, neither can be compromised. So the idea to become more efficient with our input, be it water, be it fertilizer, be it fungicide, insecticide. And that affects the farmer's bottom line. And the cool thing about that is what it what it's it ends up with lesser load on the environment too, with fertilizer, be it fertilizer runoff or or insecticides, pesticides that are remaining in your soil and so on. So there's a big focus on climate smart, what they call you can call it whatever you want, but the but the phrase is climate smart ag and climate smart forestry. And so there are a lot of projects that are coming up. Uh, so what I'm involved a lot in is to bring teams together again teams with different expertise not just a single track but people who can use robotics and artificial intelligence and uh, people who can use precision ag and then people who actually know everything about a crop and crop physiology how a crop grows because you can't move away from that that concept and so bringing these teams together to do more efficient ag, efficient with resources, efficient with time, uh, giving empower, I call that empowering the producer, empowering the producer to make decisions, real-time decisions, empowering the producer to be more efficient with their resources so that their bottom line looks better and better. So that those are some of the, yeah, and fertilizer, fertilizer input and fertilizer, becoming smart with your fertilizer is such a big focus uh, these days and it's true for any any crop yes yes wow that that's awesome that is awesome it's encouraging it's incredibly encouraging and and over the last year you know the theme of of what we've heard from some of our researchers and experts in farming and planting have all talked about inputs right input costs going up uh while the the price hasn't always followed it up, leaving farmers in a pinch. So that's incredibly important yep. research. Um, and we can't wait to see it put in practice and in use on the on the commercial side of things and in our everyday friends and farmers' lives. Um, I know that uh, Miss Amory had some more questions for you to round this out. Miss Amory, would you like to fire off some of those hard hitters? About how many research projects have you done? Oh, you should have tried an easier one on me, Anne-Marie. I would say hundreds of research projects. But I do want to tell you, Anne-Marie, it's not me. I represent probably hundreds of projects, but there's a team. There's a very, very smart team uh, of different kinds of 
scientists out there, people who work with bugs, people who work with diseases like plant doctors, and people who work with robots and people who work with tractors and how to put out these medicines or chemicals um, on the peanuts so that they can grow better. So, and then breeders like Dr. Tillman who make new varieties. So it's a team out there, but I personally have been part of various research projects that are looking at the system, you know, how to make a crop grow better with less. So hundreds to answer your question, but definitely come out to our REC, Anne-Marie, you and your friends, and I'll give you a tour. That'd be fantastic. What inspired you to become a scientist? Okay, so, so Anne-Marie, um, about 16 years ago, I, I lived in India. I did not always live here. And I was very interested in chemistry. And uh, so I did my undergraduate in chemistry. And I took that to the next level and did a, went to a, into a master's program in biochemistry, kind of combining biology and chemistry. And I did a project. I worked with chickpeas, like garbanzo beans. And I got a protein. I like I extracted a protein out of that those seeds and found out after doing a lot of research that that protein from garbanzo beans could be used to kill some insects that were attacking stored wheat and rice. Like, you know, once the farmer harvests and puts it in these big bins, there are some insects. Dr. George, she's going to be rubbing hummus around the whole house. <laughs> oh my gosh. No, 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 no. <laughs> hummus is a lot better with your pita, but you know, but then this one, uh, uh, and that, when I thought about that, Anne-Marie, I thought, okay, this, my little research project, which I thought would not go anywhere, can actually solve a farmer's problem out there. And that kind of really inspired me. And I went on to do a PhD. I did more on that same line of work and uh, I never looked back. And that's why uh, it's, it's really cool uh, to solve real world problems and to see that you can make a little difference. That's awesome. Sounds like we could solve some peanut packers and in, in shell facilities problem as well. The the honor of of coming up with something that can really yeah. benefit society. Real world problems. That is very exciting to me. And and to be honest, I'm a little bit jealous. I'm not sure if I'm helping the world. <laughs> I think you incredible. are by bringing these. Yeah, you represent. Uh, the producers and you bring all these uh, real world issues to us. Otherwise, we could work all day in a little silo and be happy that we are solving problems. But then it's this interaction that brings us to the real world. So we it's a team. It's a team. And that's what's most exciting about uh, this area of work. Yes. You have another question? One more. What would you say to young women who would like to become a scientist? Oh, Go for it is what I would say, Anne-Marie. So in a few years, everything is going to change, right? How we do our science and the tools and technology is going to be different. The questions are going to be different. Peanuts are not going to go away anywhere, but the kind of problems that we will have in, in, in producing food, food is not going to go out of fashion. Let me just put it that way, Anne-Marie. Mm -hmm. So you want to become a scientist and solve real world food problems, nutrition problems, not just in the United States, but across the world. There's yes. a whole world waiting out there with 
different problems, new problems. And there's always a need for minds like bright minds like you to come up with solutions, new solutions. So I would say go for it. Awesome. That's awesome. Any more, Anne-Marie? No. Those were the hard hitters. I will, Dr. George, we appreciate you for joining us today and, and sharing your wealth of knowledge. If somebody wants to follow up maybe on some of, of your resources or uh, contact you, how would they go about doing that? Oh, well, the easiest way, it's it's easy to, you know, either look me up or, uh, you know, uh, it's my email is shijajorge at ufl.edu. And, um, you know, it's, uh, we are on our website, the NFREC website or the UFIFAS website. All of that is out there and it's open information. Uh, con- you can contact any of us. And then if anybody contacts me, I'll be happy to connect you all with the right experts. You know, again, I'm not oh, claiming. Yes, that's that's how we operate here. We connect people. And so uh, it shouldn't be difficult at all. So uh, feel free to- You're clearly very friendly, very knowledgeable, Mm -hmm. easy to talk to, willing to share. And and that's impressive. That's really, really nice. So thank you. So for all of our listeners, we will link the uh, website in the show notes. So check those out. Uh, Again, we've been joined by Dr. Shishi George, a research coordinator and biochemist with the North Florida Research and Education Center through UF IFAS out in Quincy. Um, She brings teams together and they solve real world problems with incredible research projects. So we appreciate your time. Uh, It's incredibly valuable. Uh, and, and we we just appreciate you. We also appreciate Ms. Anne-Marie for joining us here in studio today. She's uh, She brought some great questions and we appreciate her. We look forward to having her on many more episodes, I hope. Uh, she's done a great job. But as always, we were led by our fearless leader, Laura Falagos, and this has been the Florida Peanut Podcast. Thanks for joining us and we hope that you have a wonderful day. Thank, Thank you. you.